Good morning. Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We'll be looking at the first eight verses there today. And as you're turning there, I want to be perfectly honest, this week's text has put me through the ringer. Um, it's, it's just got some really lofty theological terms and concepts, and I've been struggling all week with how to understand these things and then how to teach them in a way that's understandable, and it's not difficult. So I appreciate your prayers, um, but if you're at Titus 3, let's go ahead and read the text, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dig in. Titus 3, 1 through 8. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your word and I thank you for the privilege that I have of teaching it today. I pray that you take the time that I've spent studying this and make it profitable for everyone here in this room. Help everyone here to learn what you would have them learn. And I come to you recognizing that I can't speak anything worthwhile. I can't say anything important apart from you. Help us all. Help us to understand. Give us the ears to hear what you want us to hear. I pray this in your name. Amen. So, like I said, this week's text is just really tough, and I hope as I was reading it, you saw verses 4 through 7 especially, just some really lofty theological concepts. I'm going to do my best to kind of bring those down to earth, explain them in a way that's easy to understand, and I think that's going to start with looking back at last week's passage. So, if you remember, we learned from the text of Titus 2 that Christians are to be living lives that are characterized by holiness and growth in faith to become more like Christ. And so we saw this whole list of characteristics, things that Paul says Christians should be. We saw that summed up in chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And so what we see in today's passage is Paul takes from that general idea of living sensibly, righteously, and godly, and he gives us very specific instructions on how to do that. He goes from the why of sanctification, why we must act in a certain way, to the how of sanctification, how we are to act that way. And so with this in mind, let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 and just jump right in. So you see, the first thing is that Titus was to remind the people. And so that tells us right off the bat, these are not new things. This is nothing that they're hearing for the first time. These are things they've heard before, concepts they're familiar with. They've learned of that, this stuff before. But it also tells us something else really important. Paul is talking 
to Christians. And that has really important impact, has a really important impact later on in the passage. So don't forget that. And so we see, because he says remind them, these are things that Christians are expected to do, ways that Christians are expected to act. And the first thing we see is a requirement of submission to rulers and to authorities. Now, the word for submission has come up a couple of times already in this in the book of Titus. Um, so it's kind of a familiar concept at this point. It's this idea of choosing to obey, choosing to, um, to recognize someone's authority and follow it. And this doesn't mean that Christians should just bend to anyone who wants them to do what they want. It doesn't mean that we're pushovers. It doesn't mean that we just give in. What it does mean is that we should be characterized by obedience. So to gain some clarity on this and to understand what this concept is referring to, let's look at some other passages in the Bible that talk about obedience to rulers and understand what this is, what we're talking about. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, where we'll be looking at verses 13 and 15. And in 1 Peter, the context is uh, Peter's speaking to the church, um, and he's telling them about their status as Christians and as those who have been chosen by Christ. And he's giving them instructions for how to live within that reality in their present situation. So 1 Peter 2, I'm going to read verses 13 through 15. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right he may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What we see here is a similar set of commands to what we see in Titus. But there's greater detail about the purpose of these commands and the purpose of following the ruling authorities and also some of the more of the reasons for obeying them. So we see that the ruling authorities are set up to punish evildoers and to reward those who do right. And we see that as Christians, we are to obey them so that we may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And this is very much like what I talked about last week, what we learned about last week, about the idea of making the gospel attractive. And I do want to point out that at the time of this writing, at the time of the writing of the Bible, government was a very different thing from what it is today. Today we have the freedom to vote. We can influence the way our government acts. At this time, they couldn't. There was nothing they could do to change anything of their government. And so this is a much harder thing that Paul is saying here than we, have, than we experience today. We don't have to worry about our government killing us for our faith. There are places around the world where they do have to worry about that. But the point that I want to make is we're required to subject ourselves to authorities and rulers, and this is not really that hard compared to what these Christians had to do, what other Christians around the world have to do. But there are some situations, even here in the U.S., when it is appropriate to disobey the law. Go ahead and turn with me now to Acts 5. We're looking at Acts 5.29. And as you're turning there, just some of the context for the book of Acts. Remember, the book of Acts was written as the account of what the apostles did, the stories of what they did and how they followed Christ to bring the church and to bring the gospel to the world. And so 
in verse or in chapter five, what we see is Peter and the apostles have been preaching the gospel, and the chief priest and the Pharisees did not like that. And so they put them in prison overnight. But an angel released them from prison and told them to go back and preach the gospel. And they did. And this is what happens after the chief priest find out, finds out about that. Acts 5.29. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them. So again, they've been brought before this council The chief priests and the Pharisees do not like the fact that they've been preaching the gospel. Verse 28, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring bring this man's blood upon us. This is where it gets important. Acts 5.29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The point is, in this situation, God told them to act in a certain way. And the ruling authorities told them to act in a different way. And they obeyed God. And so there are some situations, even in America, where we have things like that. Now, another thing we know from other passages like 1 Timothy 2.2, you don't have to turn there, is that we are called to pray for those in authority. And so kind of like sum up all of this, all these different passages, we're to be subject to the authorities. We're to obey them as far as we can without denying and disobeying the scriptures. We're to pray for them. And the Bible says that by doing all these things, we show the glory of the gospel. There's a lot at stake here. Our obedience to the governing authorities shows the gospel. And there's a lot of parallels between this and our context today in America. We're in the midst of a really contentious political season. We're in the midst of dark days of our country. Uh, Rick mentioned three police officers were killed this morning. We had five killed last week. These are dark days for our country. And so we need to have a biblical response to these things. And that biblical response is to submit to our authorities, even when we disagree with them, to pray for them. And along with these things, I mentioned it already, in America, exercise your right to vote. This, is, this falls under the category of submitting to authorities. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. That's not my place. But I am going to tell you that, biblically speaking, we have a responsibility to evaluate each candidate, whether it's a local, a state, or a, a national election. We have a responsibility to evaluate each candidate based on what they believe, based on what they will do by the truths of Scripture and to vote according to that. Do your research. And with that warning, the last thing I'm going to say is that if you don't vote, don't complain about the outcome. (laughs) Now look at the text again. If you think submitting to the authorities is hard, it just gets harder. Verse 1 still. To be obedient. This is, uh, this is not the usual word that's used for obedience in the Bible. It actually is the same word that was used back in Acts 5, though, when, Paul, or when Peter excuse me, said that he had to obey God rather than man. And the idea it has is an idea of knowing who to obey and when. Knowing when it is appropriate to obey a person. And what Paul is saying here in Titus is that we need to be obedient to the ruling authorities and, and 
sorry, to the rulers and the authorities, because that is appropriate. And the next thing, to be ready for every good deed. This ties in completely with the first two things. It means we're supposed to be so in tune with God that we know what is appropriate to do, when it's appropriate to do that. And these things, when we're eager to do good deeds, we're eager to obey, and they all just tie together. Part of this obedience, part of this, like I said, is obedience when it's appropriate. And that continues into the next verse. We're commanded to malign no one. The word malign refers to speaking badly about someone, um, especially to damage their reputation, or saying something unkind or hurtful to them. And for us today, that might mean talking about someone behind their back. It might mean saying something unkind to someone. But you know what it also probably means? Writing an unkind comment on Facebook. And I've seen a lot of times, especially in the last, the last couple of years with increasingly contentious political stuff on Facebook, even friends will say are, you know, awful, nasty things on Facebook. And people you don't even know will say terrible things to you. And this is, that's maligning. And Paul tells us not to do that here. And that idea is made even more clear by the next item. Be peaceable. Some translations say not quarreling, and I think that really captures the idea here. The point is that if you're faced with a conflict, rather than going in and fighting, you turn back. You turn aside and allow that conflict to do its own thing. You, you stay out of that. We must be peaceable. We must live appropriately. We must be gentle. And gentleness, again, ties into the idea of letting your actions be appropriate to the situation. And the final thing we see in the list is that we must show consideration for all men. And this includes those who we disagree with. And it reminds me of something my church back in Chicago does every year that I really, really have come to love. Um, and I think that shows this idea really well. Every day on, every year on the day of Chicago's Pride Parade, where people are celebrating sin, rejoicing in their evil, my church goes out with hundreds and hundreds of water bottles to give water to people who hate the church, to people who want nothing to do with the church. Maybe they've been hurt by the church in the past. I don't know. The point is, my church is making an effort to reach out to these people who they don't necessarily agree with. They're showing consideration to them, and that brings glory to God and glory to the gospel. God has called us to consider other people above ourselves. In Philippians 2, you don't have to turn there. I don't even think it's on the slide. It isn't. Um, in Philippians 2, we see that Christ considered us above himself, and then he gives us that command to consider others above ourselves. And that's the same principle here. Think of the needs of other people. Do it as kind. Do it as gentle, peaceable, appropriate. And all these things, these first two verses, these are not one-time actions. These are things that are supposed to characterize Christian lives. These are the ways we're supposed to live. This is what we're commanded in the first two verses. Now we get to verse 3, and we see a contrast. And Paul emphasizes several things here. First, notice he says, for we. He doesn't put himself on a pedestal. He doesn't level an accusation. Now, it's been four weeks since I introduced Paul. Let's just kind of refresh our memories, remember who Paul is, understand 
why he would write this. Turn with me to Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. And we're going to understand a little bit better who Paul is. So that's Philippians 3. Now, this passage comes right in the middle of Paul's defense of his credentials. He was speaking to false teachers who claimed that they had the privilege to teach the gospel based on who they were. And so his response to them is to show that he was even more qualified. So Philippians 3, I'll start in verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So he says, if anyone has this right to put their confidence in the flesh, I have it more than anyone else. Verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, so clearly the most important tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. Paul stands before Christians and says, according to the law, I was blameless. No one could hold a charge against me. This is the same Paul who in Titus 3, verse 3, says, we were once all these things. It says, I was and you were. The next thing he emphasizes, if you see back in Titus 3, we were once. That means no longer. And we'll see that contrast brought out even more a couple of verses down, down the passage. And the emphasis is on the fact that these things are no longer true of them. So remember last week when we looked at Ephesians 2, we saw that God has brought us from death to life. We were dead in our sins, but God made us alive. It's very much the same thing here, the same idea. And as we dig into this, we'll see the difference in our lives, how God has brought us from death to life. And so in verse 3, the first thing, we were once foolish. The biblical idea of foolishness is a little bit different from our modern idea of foolishness. So I want to kind of unpack this a little bit. So if you turn with me, go to Romans 1 so we can understand this idea of foolishness. What foolishness is in a biblical sense. Romans 1, we're going to be looking at verse 21. And so... Just a reminder on the context of Romans. I know Gunnar preached through it not too long ago. This is a book written to a church that Paul had never met. He wanted to introduce himself. He wanted to show the truths of the gospel, and he wanted to defend the gospel. And so here in chapter 1, he's talking about the consequences of unbelief. So Romans 1, 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What we see here is that these people became foolish, and in their foolishness, what did they do? They exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for that which is corruptible. To understand this, 
Imagine you were given the most valuable diamond in the world. You could sell it and never have to work another day in your life. It's worth more money than you can imagine. You own it. You can do whatever you want with it. And so you take that diamond, and instead of selling it, you walk down to the local brickyard and trade it to them for a brick. One brick. Now, aside from the person who just got the diamond, anyone else would think you were the biggest fool in the world. Because you're trading this extraordinarily, extraordinarily valuable diamond for a brick. But this is what Paul says we once were. We were fools on a greater scale than that. We exchanged the glory of God for that which is corruptible. And so in Titus 3, when Paul says we were once foolish, understand how, how, extreme, this, how extreme a statement this is. Foolishness. We were once like this. But we weren't just foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. The word here means being led astray. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We spent our lives in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Paul is painting this bleak picture. Each one of our lives looks looked like this before Christ. Now, this is something you've probably all heard before. And for some of you, if you didn't grow up in the church, especially, you might look back on your early lives and think, yep, that's me. I was right there. I can think of like all these things. And you think back with sorrow to an earlier time in your life. But for others of us, including myself, it might be a bit harder. I was raised in the church. I sat in the back, in the back row and listened to Gunnar preach um, for most of my growing up years. And much like Paul said back in Philippians, I thought I had it all sorted out. I, had, I thought I had a good understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. I thought I knew. And I'd read passages like this and think, oh, okay, that doesn't really apply to me. doesn't really, you know, I wasn't like that. I remember hearing these things, reading these things, thinking, well, I'm the good kid. I go to church every Sunday. It doesn't, it doesn't apply to me. And so if you were raised in the church, it might be harder for you to see how this applies to you, how foolish you, might, you were before Christ, how disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures you were. But I want to tell you that Christ sees the intents of our hearts. He sees our motives. And he says that those motives, those desires, those evil things within us are just as bad as the physical actions. These all fall into the category of what we used to be. Now look at verse 4. Paul has just finished painting this bleak picture of the depth of our sin and the extent of the consequences for it. But now that he's finished with this bad news, he comes forward with the best news any person could ever hope for. He saved us. God saved us. Now, I mentioned it a couple times already, but in Ephesians 2, we see we go from death to life. And it's the same thing that's going on here. And it reminds me, you don't have to flip there, but it reminds me of John 9. We see the story of a blind man who Jesus gave, gave sight to. 
And I remember the passage because it's one of the first full chapters that um, full chapters of the Bible that I translated. And I, I mean, they didn't kick me out of school, so I guess I must have done an okay job. Um, but in that chapter, we see this man. He was born blind, and as Jesus and the disciples were walking past, Jesus or the disciples asked Jesus, "Why is this man blind? Is it something that he did, or is it something that his parents did? A sin that who committed the sin?" And he said, well, no, nobody committed this sin. He was born blind so that God could be glorified. Then he regained, like, gives the man his sight. And the Pharisees get upset about that, and they call the man in. They ask him, okay, who did this? How did it happen? And he says something really important. He says, one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. He didn't know how it happened. He didn't know exactly why it happened. But he knew that he was blind, and now he could see. And this is very, very much like the contrast Paul is drawing here. We were dead in our sins, but now we are alive. We have gone from death into life. So now, pay attention to this next section. Like I said, this is where it starts getting really heavy. I'm going to do my best to to explain it clearly and um, summarize it well. But verse 4, we see a couple of important things. First, we see this appearing. Remember last week, we saw two different appearings in Titus 2.11 and Titus 2.13, and I kind of talked about and explained that the first appearing is the coming of Christ at his birth, which brings salvation to all men. And the second appearing is the future one when he comes back to redeem us, to take us, and to set everything in order. So what we see here in chapter 3 is the appearing of the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind, which refers to that first coming. This is where Christ has offered salvation to all people in his kindness and in his love for them. So the emphasis in this verse is on the certainty of the fact that his kindness and love appeared and also on the time, when they appeared. And so, remember, this draws a contrast with the previous verse. We once were all these things, but when his love appeared. But that's not the whole story. So let's look at the text and keep going. So we see in verse 5, when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So we get this foundational statement. He saved us. I mentioned that already, but Paul is talking to Christians here. This isn't a blanket statement that says that all people are saved. He saved us. And so if you're not a Christian here today, I want you to hear this and understand this can be true of you, too. But when Paul says he saved us, he's speaking to Christians. And so the first thing we see about this salvation is that it's not on the basis of works. It's not on the basis of anything that we do, our righteousness. But Paul just spent like the whole past two chapters talking about all the ways that Christians need to live and all the reasons they need to live in those ways. So what's going on here? He says it's not by deeds of righteousness, but he just spent a whole bunch of time telling us the ways that we need to act, the things that we need to do. 
there's a lot I could say about this. And if you're interested in studying it further, write Romans 4 in your notes and go read that later. But the main thing is, the big point, is that our works don't save us. Christ saves us. But righteous works are still important because the gospel should drive us to righteous deeds. And I will come back to that a little bit in a moment. Um, but I just want to keep going with the text. So Paul explains righteous deeds do not save us. But then he explains what does. God saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There's a lot in there, so let's just step back for a minute and unpack that. The first thing we see is that we are saved according to God's mercy. We need to understand what mercy is. Mercy is a term that refers to not getting what you deserve or alternatively getting something you don't deserve. And the best example I have of this is say you were driving 70 miles an hour in a 45 zone. You get pulled over. In that situation, you deserve a ticket. You're going double the speed, nearly double the speed limit. You deserve a ticket. So if the police officer chooses not to give you a ticket, that is mercy. He is within his right to give you that ticket. He does not have to get, let you off with that one. That's mercy. And this is a freebie because I already built the illustration. If he gave you 20 bucks on the side, that would be grace. But. <laughs> anyway, the principle to take away is that God doesn't owe us anything. But in his love for us, he has showed us mercy. And in his mercy, he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is this work that he does, work that the Holy Spirit does in each person to save them, to bring them to life. Remember, I've mentioned Ephesians 2 a couple times now. God brings us from death into life. This is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And just to be clear, this is a spiritual death that we're in. When I say that he brings us from death to life, we are spiritually dead. It's not as though everyone who has not believed in Christ is walking around dead in their bodies. That's not true. We know that you're still alive before Christ. Spiritual death. But this raising to life is what the washing of regeneration is. It's a one-time action that the Holy Spirit does for us at the moment of salvation. But the next thing, the renewing, is a continuous, ongoing process that the Holy Spirit does throughout our lives that does a couple things for us. You notice I've talked a lot in the past couple of weeks about sanctification and all these things that we need to do, ways that we need to be according to the scriptures. But I haven't said a whole lot about where the power or the ability to do those things come from. Because I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to go through life and to act rightly. There are times when I selfishly don't want to do what is right. But what we see here is that the Holy Spirit gives us that power to act rightly. And this is the renewing that we're talking about. The renewing by the Holy Spirit. To illustrate this, think about, think about if you just built a brand new pool in your backyard. Just finished, the concrete is just, just set, and you want to go use your pool. In order to start using it, you have to fill it. You have to fill it with water. But you don't drain it and then refill it every time you want to go swimming. So that first filling is like what the regeneration of the Holy Spirit is. It happens once. 
then it's done. But as time goes on with that pool, if you don't keep putting more water into it, it's going to dry up. If you don't put chemicals in the water, the water's going to get nasty. If you don't have a filter, the water's going to get nasty. And so that's very much like the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's a continual day-by-day action. And one other thing, just to be really, really clear, um, it's not in the text, but I do want to make this point. Go ahead and flip in your Bibles to Ephesians 1.13. One of the other ministries of the Holy Spirit is what we'll see here in Ephesians. And this one is especially important for us as Christians, and it's really important for us to know this and to understand this, so that we have confidence in our faith. So Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So Christians, hear this. If you have believed in Christ and he has brought you from death to life, he has sealed you with his Holy Spirit and he will never let you go. And I don't want you to understand that if you have dry times, spiritually dry times, or if you have times when you feel like you can't do anything but sin, understand that in those times, you are still sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still there working in you. And that's a really, really important time important point. We cannot be lost once the Spirit has sealed us. So now look at verse 6. I've kind of just read it along with verse 5 because we're talking about the Holy Spirit. We see that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon us richly by God through Jesus Christ our Savior. To continue that pool analogy, can you imagine how ridiculous it would be if you finished building the pool and then sat back and waited for it to fill itself, it would never happen. And in the same way, it's ridiculous to think that we can fill ourselves because that's something that God does to us. God fills us. We can't do the renewing. We can't do the regeneration. God does those things. And he pours the Spirit out on us through Jesus Christ. And notice that the text refers to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Look back to verse 4. We see God, our Savior. Paul's making a point with his language here. He's drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. And he's also pointing to the fact of God's threefold nature, what we call the Trinity. This is an important reminder of the fact that when we talk about salvation... We can't ever think of it or talk about it as though it's Jesus Christ who saves us alone by himself without God the Father and God the the Holy Spirit. It is a triune act. The three of them work together to bring us to salvation. We see verse 4, the kindness of God our Savior. Verse 5, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit save us. And we know that we'll never truly fully understand the Trinity as long as we are we have these fleshly bodies as long as we're on this earth. But it's really important to think about this and to understand at least the idea that God saves us in his triune nature. And now in verse 7, we see what this work of God is that saves us, what it accomplishes for us. 
so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. A couple of really important things to notice here. First, you see the words so that, which tell us this is a result statement. This is telling us the result of what has happened before. Then we see being justified. And this is really important because it tells us a couple of things. First, like I said earlier, it's not an action that we do. We do not justify ourselves. God justifies us. And second, it tells us that this is a past action that has future benefits for us. Imagine lighting a match. You strike it, it's on fire, and then it goes out. You can't restrike that match. It'll never, ever be the same again. It's a one-time action that has ongoing effects. And so we need to understand what this action is. I've said the word a couple times already, but what is justification? And the simplest way I can, under, I can explain it is that it's what Jesus does at the moment of salvation, at the moment of the Spirit's regeneration, to make Christians right with God, to make Christians have the sinlessness of, of Christ. And this is huge. The effect is that God sees Christians as though they have no sin. And like I said earlier, the Spirit seals us, so that can't change. That doesn't go back. Once we are justified, we are right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And we see that we are justified by God's grace. And we say that this makes us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that hope refers to our hope for salvation. And like we learned last week in verse 13, part of this hope is that we will enjoy eternal life with Christ. Now, gotten through those, those four rough verses that I've been like wrestling with all week. And I've said a lot. So, to kind of step back and summarize, we need to know the truth of the gospel. If you are not saved, you need to trust in this work that Christ has done. Trust him. We see this summarized in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, you don't have to turn there. It says, Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. He defeated death, he defeated sin, and he offers us life. And we know according to the scriptures that if you believe this, you will be saved. If you do know Christ, we need to know these truths because the gospel will impact us. It will change the way we live. It will change the way we act. And it will motivate us to tell others about the, about the truths of the gospel. So if you don't know Christ, I urge you, consider these truths. Believe them for yourself. Because it's only by doing this that the Spirit will bring you from death unto life and then seal you and then renew you to live rightly. So now in verse 8, we see sort of a summary statement. Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement. And he's referring to this previous four verses I just summed up. This is the message of the gospel. And it's a very clear explanation of it. And Paul emphasizes the fact that it is a very direct and theologically loaded statement 
and he affirms that it's true. And we see that Paul wanted Titus to speak confidently concerning these things so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Now, we talked about good deeds a little bit back in verse 5, saying that God did not save us on the basis of our deeds. But I want to just emphasize this and stick with this point for a minute. If you skim through the past couple of chapters and through the book of Titus, you see good deeds mentioned a good number of times. I didn't, I didn't count it, but I think it's five or six times. And so we see that we are to do good deeds, but that our good deeds do not save us. So I want to unpack this and understand why Paul is putting this emphasis. We'll go ahead and turn to Ephesians 2, where we'll look at verses 8 through 10. It's Ephesians 2. And so I've referenced this probably four or five times already today. Remember the beginning of Ephesians 2, we're talking about going from death to life. This passage now, verses 8, 9, and 10, give us a really clear explanation of the truths of the gospel, how we are saved, but then also how the gospel motivates us to works, to good works. Let me read Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. We see that we are not saved by works, but that we are created for good works. God has prepared these good works beforehand, and he has created us for them. And so with this closing statement, Paul emphasizes this idea that the gospel motivates us to do good works, to live rightly. And then he makes one last important claim. These things are good and profitable for men. These things refers to the gospel. The gospel is good for all people. We know that God wants all people to be saved, and we see here that we as Christians need to be living our lives in a way that brings glory to the gospel, glory to God, and that proclaims the gospel through our actions so that others may be saved. And I challenge you to consider this. Like I said earlier, if you don't know Christ, trust in the truth of the gospel. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to bring you from death into life. If you do know Christ, ask him to equip you. How are you living your life? Are you encouraging other Christians to engage in good deeds? Are you proclaiming the gospel with your lifestyle? If you're not, look back to the first couple of verses of this chapter. Remember what you once were, what God has brought you out of. Let that impact you. Let the greatness and the magnitude of what God has done in your life change the way you live. Know your responsibility to share that impact with an unbelieving world. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your work in our lives to remove our foolishness and to bring us into a right relationship with you, to bring us from death into life. I pray that we would not forget this, but that you would constantly remind us of this reality of our changed lives as your children. 
Give us the strength to remind each other of these truths so that we may do good deeds and allow us to speak confidently so that an unbelieving world sees you as the only way to be saved. And I pray all this in your name. Amen.